Well, good morning. I found out this to be true through the course of life. When you're in trouble, because I've been in trouble, when you're in a tight spot, when you're under attack, it is a very good thing to have a competent, powerful, and faithful advocate. <laughs> I remember when I was, I don't even think, 20 years old, I'm leading a, a, a convoy, a military vehicle convoy, through downtown Seattle. We were not supposed to be in downtown Seattle, but you see, I'd missed a turn. And then so, you know, I'm leading this convoy through the middle of downtown, and I, I didn't want my convoy to be split up by a red light. And so while I did the obvious thing, at least it seemed obvious to me, uh, AR in hand, I jumped out of my Jeep and I started to direct traffic. I just stopped traffic and, and waved this long line of trucks through intersection after intersection. I think it was actually on that very same trip. Uh, later, leading that same convoy along I-90, then again, I missed a turn. I missed an off-ramp, and since our next meal was planned for that exit... I did, again, what seemed to me to be the obvious thing. I grabbed my M16, I jumped out of my Jeep, and I directed the convoy to use the next on-ramp as if it were an off-ramp. <laughs> Apparently, leading convoys is not in my skill set. <laughs> Amazingly, I never got in trouble for any of that. Or for any of the other blunders that may or may not have been committed during that tenure. And I'm pretty sure that I was spared because of my father's name. You see, those who might have justifiably come after me, they knew my dad. My dad had rank. He, he had an excellent reputation. And they assumed that he would have been my advocate. I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> you know, when you've messed up royally, when there is just absolutely no defending yourself, it is good in that moment to have someone who will stand with you. Someone who will stand for you, who will see you through it all, and who will, because we need this often, rescue us from our self-made dilemmas. <laughs> Realize it or not, each and every one of us, we live in just that sort of predicament. Every one of us stands guilty before God. Do, do you understand that? Uh, do you know that? Uh, religious or not, uh, we stand guilty before God. Romans 3.10 puts it rather bluntly. Uh, Paul, Paul says it this way. He says, there is no one righteous. No, not even one. <laughs> we always think we're the exception, don't we? And so Paul says, yeah, no, not even you. You and I, we are in an indefensible situation. We are innately 
guilty. There's nothing we can do about it. And we will stand before an all-seeing, all-powerful, and utterly uncompromising judge. Our situation is entirely untenable. It is indisputably desperate. We need an advocate. We need someone who will be willing and able to stand with us and to stand for us. Well, in our passage this morning in Luke chapter 22, we see that, well, even Jesus' disciples needed an advocate. They were in the same desperate situation in which we find ourselves, and they had an advocate, and it was Jesus. Jesus who not only was their advocate, but is also ours. Will you do this? Will you grab your Bible and open up to Luke chapter 22? I'd love for you to, to read along with me. I'll, I'll read our passage. You can follow along. Will you stand and I'll read our passage for this morning? It's just going to be a few short verses out of Luke 22 from verse 31 through 34. Luke 22, beginning in verse 31. It's Jesus who is speaking. Here's what he says. Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Lord, he told him, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I tell you, Peter, he said, the rooster will not crow today until you deny three times that you know me. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you would grant us the grace today to see, to understand that we have the ultimate advocate, that our Savior, Jesus, is the one who is for us and who stands for us and who stands with us and who even prays for us. God, I pray that, uh, that we would not only understand that to be truth today, but we would allow that truth to change us, to shape us, to impact us and that we would respond to it. Help us to hear your voice this morning, Lord. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, as always, we've, we've got to remember the context of our passage, right, if we're going to understand it. And so I want you to remember that, uh, that this is taking place just after Jesus and his disciples have, have gathered to, to celebrate the Passover dinner together one last time. And remember, it's during that, that celebration of Passover, that traditional ceremonial meal uh, that they will share that points them back to how God God had redeemed the nation of Israel out of slavery to Egypt. It was in the midst of that 
uh, that Jesus began to point to a new and a greater redemption uh, that he was about to accomplish, uh, that he began to show his disciples that he was going to do something that would purchase all of us out of our slavery to sin. And then after telling his disciples about this, he then shares with them the the horrific news that he was about to be betrayed by one of his own, by one of them. And so his disciples do what they often did. They begin to argue. Uh, First, they, they begin to argue about which one of them was the traitor. I don't think they settled it. And they moved on from who was the traitor to which of them was the greatest. And Jesus responded to that, and we looked at that over the last several weeks. And then this morning, we pick up in verse 31. And there in verse 31, Jesus says, Simon, Simon. Now, remember, Simon, that's Peter's original name. Uh, Jesus was the one who had renamed Peter, uh, giving him the name Peter, which literally means little rock. Remember that? When Simon had boldly stated that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus responded to him and said, you are Peter, or you are the little rock. And on this large rock, on this foundational rock, the fact that that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus said, I will build my church. So Jesus changes his name. And yet, here, Jesus returns to calling him Simon. Now, I don't want to make too much of this because Scripture doesn't tell us uh, why it is that here Jesus calls him Simon instead of calling him Peter. But I think it's pretty likely it's because here, well... Peter isn't acting very rock-like, is he? Instead, he's, he's the impulsive and passionately rash Simon that we all recognize and, honestly, that we can all relate to. It's true, isn't it? Uh, we all tend to leap before we look. Uh, far too often we speak before we think, right? Right? Sometimes we commit before we calculate. That impulsiveness, though, what we've got to realize is that most often it's an issue of us responding to our own carnality. Usually that comes from, it is based in, it is controlled by our carnal or our flesh nature. It's certainly not a result of us walking in the spirit, uh, but rather of us responding to our flesh. It's something that seems good in that instant. Oh, but in the end, it seldom turns out well. You and I, instead, we've got to learn to be those who walk by the spirit. Who, who daily marinate our lives in God's word and in God's presence so that then, as Galatians 5 tells us, we will walk by the Spirit and certainly not carry out 
the desire of the flesh. Well, back to verse 31, Jesus looks to Peter and he says, Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Now, we can't see it in our English translations, but in the original Greek, here the word you in verse 31, it's, it's plural. And so Jesus is saying, look out, Satan has asked to sift all of you. You see, all of Jesus' disciples are about to be sifted. Uh, they're about to face a crisis of difficulty, a test, if you will. And like a gold panner washing out the sediment, separating it from that which is heavier and more valuable, so too this trial will attempt to wash out the lightweights. The enemy is going to do what, uh, what he is always trying to do. He wants to separate the chaff from the wheat, to separate the lightweights from Jesus, the one true heavyweight. By the way, if you belong to Christ, though you may be a lightweight, the enemy will never succeed in separating you from your master. He can't do that. If you belong to Jesus, nothing can separate you from him. In John 10, 28, Jesus says this, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. In Romans chapter eight, Paul puts it this way. He says that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Yeah. Here, Jesus' disciples, they are secure. But understand this, they're, they're not secure because of their strength. And they're not secure because of their determination or their devotion. They are secure because of their, their Lord and their Savior. And because, as verse 32 tells us, he's praying for them. Now look at what Jesus says there. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. It had to be rather alarming, rather disquieting for the disciples to hear Jesus say, look out, look out. Well, why should they look out? Because Satan wanted to sift them. Now, to hear Jesus tell you that, that would be a bit alarming, wouldn't it? But what a comfort to hear him say the very next words that he says, that, that he was for them and that he was going to be praying for them. Yes, the enemy wanted to sift them. They were going to face some circumstances that were going to be difficult. But in the midst of it, they could know this. Their Savior, their Lord was for them. He was with them and he was praying for them. You know, with the, the right advocate, <laughs> you can face practically anything. When I was in the fifth grade, I had a really smart mouth. <laughs> I know, hard to imagine, isn't it? But I did. Mostly, I had a smart mouth because I also had a really big best friend. Eric, who happened to be in sixth grade, he was so big that one time he was even mistaken for a teacher. 
Now I mentioned Eric was in sixth grade and I was in fifth grade. And so when he left grade school for junior high, suddenly me and my big mouth were left all alone. I suddenly had no advocate. And so I learned very quickly to shut up. I know, again, hard to believe, isn't it? All the confidence, all the freedom that I had back in fifth grade because I had an advocate, it was gone. You know what? You and I, you and I, we don't ever have to worry about losing our advocate. We don't have to worry that that Jesus is going to move on, uh, that he's going to leave us behind. Uh, In in Hebrews 13.5, he actually addresses this, and the Lord promises us this. He says, I will never leave you or abandon you. That's good to know, isn't it? This life, it can get pretty messy. The sifting that we often undergo. Oh, it can be a bit terrifying. We experience things in this life that we don't understand, that that are difficult for us to handle. How good is it to know that he will never leave us, that he will never (laughs) abandon us? Our advocate, our advocate isn't flighty. He is loving And he is trustworthy. And he isn't weak. He is all powerful. And yet he is so merciful toward us. He will not fail us or abandon us. Understand this. On every day, at all times, in every situation, he is for us. And he is praying for us. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 7 says. Isn't this reassuring? Speaking of Jesus, he says he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. (sighs) Isn't that good to know? I don't know what you're facing right now. I don't know how dark the day is for you. But isn't it good to know that he is able? Isn't it good to know that there is nothing that overwhelms him? Isn't it good to know that he is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them? Our Savior, the one we worship, Scripture says about him that he lives for this. He always lives for what? to intercede for you. This is is what he does. He stands for you and he intercedes for you. Know this, if you have put your hope in Christ, if you belong to him, then he's praying for you. It's amazingly encouraging, isn't it? When someone tells you that they're praying for you, I mean, when you really think they actually are praying for you. I mean, when someone just says that, it's, it's, you know, that's okay. But when someone says it and you just know, you know they really are 
praying for you. Isn't that amazing? I know that many of you, you pray for me regularly. Thank you. Never stop. <laughs> Never stop. Man, I can't tell you how encouraging it is to know that I'm prayed for. I mean, I feel loved. I feel valued. I feel protected by that. How much more? How much more should it speak into each of our lives to know that our risen Savior, that our King of kings and Lord of lords, that our Jesus, that he stands always as an advocate for us before the Father, that he prays for us. You know, that, that should shape how you think that the Lord sees you. And most of us seem to be convinced that when God thinks about us, he rolls his eyes a bit and maybe mutters to himself, oy vey, yeah, yeah. He groans a bit and then he tries really hard to think of something else, anything else. That, that, that isn't it. That isn't how he sees us. We seem to be so convinced that God is disappointed, that he is disgusted with us. Some of us are pretty convinced that, well, God's just done with me. Given up, moved on. He's not. He's not. If you are in Christ if you have given yourself to Christ, then God sees and accepts you in his son. He sees and he accepts you based upon the righteousness of Jesus, not the mess that you've made. And so he's for us. Whether you can see it or not, even in the midst of whatever moment you happen to be in, he is at work in your life. He is working for your good. It's interesting, I said earlier that in verse 31 when he says you, that it's plural, he's talking about all of the disciples. Uh, but, but now in verse 32, he, he says the word you again, but it's a different word. Oh, well, a different form of the same word. And this time, it's singular. This time, when he says, I have prayed for you, it's singular. And so it here, it seems that Jesus is speaking specifically to Simon, to Peter. Now, I am sure, I am confident that Jesus prayed for all of his disciples as they were approaching this time of sifting. But he knew what was coming for Peter. He, he knew what Peter would face. And he knew how Peter would fail. And he knew that Peter needed to know specifically. I'm praying for you, Peter. I'm praying for you. Look at the second half of verse 32. Because Jesus not only knew what Peter needed, he knew how it was going to turn out in the end. 
He knew not only that the Peter was going to fail, but then look at this. He says, you, when you have turned back, and Peter, after you failed and after you have turned back to me, strengthen your brothers. I don't know about you, but I, for me, this is absolutely the most encouraging part of this whole passage. Because here Jesus knows that Peter is going to mess things up terribly. But that's not the end. That's not the end. Do you, do you get that? Our failure isn't fatal. Well, the enemy's constantly whispering that in your ear, isn't he? Isn't the enemy constantly telling you that that mistake you've made, that rebellious moment, it's too late. It's over. Give up. Pack it in. That's not the message of Jesus. That's not what the Spirit would speak to you. Spirit says something different. The Spirit says, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. What a message of hope. You, you know, it's in the midst of our defeat, it's in the midst of our failure that, that then more than ever, Jesus is our advocate. We kind of assume the opposite, don't we? We assume that, that what Jesus is saying is, hey, listen, as long as you perform what perform well, as long as you keep your nose clean, I, I'm there for you. But if you blow it, if you fail, you're on your own. But it's in that moment of failure that he is more than ever our advocate. 1 John chapter 2 says this. He says, I write these things so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, and you will, we have an advocate with the Father. When do we have an advocate with the Father? Never more than when we have failed. And who is that advocate? It is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. When we fail, if we will, as 1 John chapter 9, or chapter 1, verse 9 tells us, if we will confess our sin, if we will just simply agree with God that, that what we have done is sin, if we will choose to turn away from it, then he will be faithful and righteous, and he will forgive us. But he does more than that. He doesn't just forgive us and then set us in a corner away from himself. He forgives us and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. If we will turn to him, if we will turn away from our sin, he will not turn us away. He will cleanse us forgive us. And then, and this just blows my mind. And then he will work through us despite our failure. Notice that Jesus doesn't say to Peter, Peter, after you've blown it and turned back to me, I will, 
I will forgive you, but you're done. Out of the game. Hit the bench. You're riding the pine for the rest. No. No. Jesus says, when you have come back to me, strengthen your brothers. I'm going to use you. I am going to work through you despite your failure. In fact, sometimes God uses our failures, doesn't he? He redeems them with us. It's, it's much like the way that he, he comforts us in our affliction, right? Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves have received from God. So we go through some sort of grief. We experience some sort of pain. And then God pours his comfort into us. And isn't that a sweet thing? Isn't that a wonderful thing to be comforted by God? But it isn't just for us. It's so that we might then share that comfort with others. So too, having freed us from sin, he uses us to communicate his redemption to those who find themselves enslaved to the same sorts of things that we had enslaved ourselves to. This is what Paul is talking about to the Corinthians. Though we have failed and God has reconciled us to himself through Christ, he has rescued us, he now gives us, he commits the message of reconciliation to us. I find that amazing. That we who have failed are the ones that God chooses to use to minister to others. And so Jesus tells Peter, after you fail, when you've repented, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. God's grace abounds. Our God redeems and restores sinners. God's grace is greater than all of our sin. Do you understand that? Do you believe that to be true? And not just for others, but for you. This isn't just about others. God's grace is greater than other people's sin. This is true about you as well. Uh, what the old song says is true. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Amen. Hey, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, God's grace is greater. It isn't over for you. He has not given up on you. God's grace is greater. Now, don't misunderstand. God's grace is greater, but he does not coddle our sin. He's holy. Our God is holy. He is perfectly and absolutely righteous, and he calls us to be holy as well. First Peter chapter one, verse 16, God puts it so bluntly, so plainly, be holy. 
as if it were that simple. Just be holy, he says, because I am holy. Understand this. God redeems us out of sin, and he redeems us to holiness. And as we yield ourselves to him, he changes us. And that's pretty marvelous, isn't it? Because we're not really good at changing ourselves. He sets us free from sin, from guilt. Oh, the enemy likes to hit us with that, doesn't he? From death. Remember this, Christian. If the sun sets you free, if you belong to Jesus, if you have surrendered yourself to him, if the sun sets you free, you really will be free. He has purchased your freedom. Sin no longer has mastery over you. It no longer can compel you. You are free. Free to to yield yourself instead to God. And understand this, remember this as well. He who started a good work in you will carry it on into completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So many of us feel like those projects that you started months ago and then got shoved away into the garage. Every spring you go out there and you discover them anew. Oh, yeah, I was going to do that. Forgot about that. And you think that's how God looks at you. But what his word says tells us something different. What his word tells us is he will complete what he has begun in you. He will complete the healing, the cleansing, the wholeness. He will complete what he has begun in you. Our role, our role is simply to yield ourselves to him. To yield ourselves to God, to his holiness. To yield ourselves to his spirit and to begin to walk in the spirit. And to just watch and to see what it is that he will do in us and through us. Well, much like us, Peter did not like it when Jesus said that he would fail. So he, he reassures the Lord, sets him straight. Uh, verse 33, Lord, hold on a second here. Peter says, I, 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 you don't understand. I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. But Jesus knew better, didn't he? And so he responds, I tell you, Peter, the rooster won't crow. Morning won't come before three times you have denied that you even know me. Peter felt so sure, so sure that he would never abandon Jesus. You know, no matter what happened, no matter what anyone else did, he would never abandon Jesus. He assured Jesus passionately that he would stand strong. But Jesus knew better. 
He knew that though we feel strong, though we passionately proclaim our strength, yet that comes and goes. And Peter felt strong right then, but later he would feel intimidated and fearful. And before morning, just as Jesus said, Peter would deny that he even knew Jesus three times over. Trusting in our own strength, in our own fortitude, our own commitment, our own devotion. Well, Proverbs 28 says that that's not such a good idea. Listen to what it says. One who trusts in himself is a fool. (laughs) Kind of hurts, doesn't it? But one who walks in wisdom will be safe. Makes you want to walk in wisdom. Makes me want to figure out what in the world does that look like? Well, what does it mean to walk in wisdom there? Well, well, wisdom would tell us that we need a firmer foundation than self. Something more stable. We need to build our lives not on self-confidence, but on humble faith in Christ, humble dependence upon Christ. Here's another old song that's full of truth. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is what? Sinking sand. (laughs) Friends, true wisdom is to choose to trust in the Lord with all your heart and to not rely on your own understanding. And so instead of trying to manifest your hopes into reality, instead of trying to convince yourself that you can do it, instead, instead in in humble admission, cry out to God, help me, Lord. Help me. Rescue me, Lord. I need you. That's where true strength is found. It's in humble dependence upon Jesus. Failure is embarrassing, isn't it? You'd think eventually we would get used to it. I mean, we do it so often. But it hurts every time. In the midst of it, remember this. You have an advocate. You have an advocate who doesn't just advocate for you on your good days, but even more so on your worst. Jesus himself is praying for you. He is for you. Not because you're so awesome, but because he is. And remember, your failure is not the end. God's grace is greater than all your sin. Grace and repentance and restoration mean that your story and that God's plans for you, they continue on. Guys, we have a future and a hope in Christ. God isn't going to hold your brokenness against you. 
he will forgive you. And he will set you free from it. And he will empower you to overcome it. He will cleanse you of it. And then he will use you to minister his grace that he has poured out to you to those around you. It's true. The enemy wants to sift you. He wants to separate you from Jesus. He's going to give it his best shot. But remember this. Jesus is for you. He's praying for you. And he has promised you this, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has promised you this, that you have received the spirit of adoption so that you can now cry out to God, Abba, Father, because you are his child. He has promised you this, that if God is for you, who can be against you? That if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him grant us everything? Paul says this in conclusion. He says, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life. Now, that, that pretty much covers everything right there. You know, death and life. Uh, but but Paul, Paul goes on. He doesn't want to leave any stones unturned. Uh, death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us. Paul says nothing Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Friends, there's sifting ahead, but you have an advocate. You have one who is faithful, who is true, who loves you. Stand with me while I pray. Oh, God. God, I pray that these truths would, they would soak in, Lord, to such a depth that, that it would change not just our understanding, our comprehension, but... Lord, that it would change our, our heart's response, that, that we would begin to live with such a, a, a confidence in, in who you are and your great love for us. Lord, that we would build our lives not upon our own confidence or our own determination or our own devotion, we would build them upon the rock, upon Christ, his love, his devotion, his sacrifice in our place. That we would look to Jesus, we would lean upon Jesus, we would depend upon Jesus.
that we would be changed by it. God, I pray that we would become those who who no longer hide our failures, but Lord, minister out of them. Who no longer pretend that that we have somehow earned God's approval. We are eager to share with everyone who will listen how the Savior has reconciled us to God and how he wants to do that for them as well. Shape us, mold us, use us, and glorify yourself. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to encourage you as we return to worship to allow this to become a time when you actively engage in worshiping the Lord and when you allow your heart to respond to him for what it is that he has done for us. And it's going to be some folks up on either side. If I can get a couple of the elders to come up and... and we would love to pray with you. Maybe you are just having a hard time believing that the Lord really is for you. Maybe you are just struggling to, to know that he has forgiven and that he will fill you with his spirit. Let us pray with you. And let's give this time to responding to the Lord in